This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Okay, I want to invite everyone to participate in the PESI Critical Care Rehab Summit on July 18th and 19th, where I will join speech-language pathologists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and physicians for six live sessions to approach different aspects of ICU rehabilitation. There are 27 continuing education hours available, interactive question and answer sessions, and six bonus sessions. Check out the speaking tab at Consulting for the link to registration, as well as special deals for my podcast listeners. Now, let's talk about PT and OT co-treatment. As I've been making rounds with multiple teams throughout the states, I am noticing a pattern of standardized PT and OT co-treatments. This is understandable when physical and occupational therapists are sometimes the main and only drivers of early mobility with teams that are very early on in their ABCDEF bundle journey. This episode, I have two awake and walking ICU experts, physical therapist Brian Lowe's and occupational therapist Paul Arnold here to talk about their approach to working collaboratively and optimizing their expertise. They answer the question of whether or not to co-treat in the ICU. Brian and Paul, I'm so excited to have you guys on the podcast. Can you introduce yourselves? Let's start with Brian. Hi, I'm Brian. Uh, Brian Lowe's. I work at the we work at the University of Utah Hospital in Salt Lake City on a cardiovascular ICU. I have been on the cardiovascular ICU for the last nine years. And um, I recently got my CCS certification in the last couple of years as well. Congratulations. And for everyone, what is the CCS certification? Oh, I'm a board certified cardiovascular and pulmonary specialist now. Awesome. And, and it shows. Paul, what's up? Yeah, and I'm Paul Arnold. I'm an occupational therapist at the University of Utah also working in the cardiovascular ICU. Initially in my career, thought I would pursue uh, working in inpatient rehab, working with patients after TBI and um, stroke and stumbled upon um, the wild, wild west that is the ICU. So I've been having a lot of fun learning and growing in the cardiovascular ICU here at the University of Utah. And I'm so excited to have you guys on because I have admired your unit for a long time. Um, I think the first time I realized what you guys were up to was when I had a patient, I want to say back in 2017, no, maybe 2018 or so. Um, he had severe ARDS, septic shock. Um, we had him walking on a peep of 18 and hundred percent, a couple of vasopressors, but he did get to the point in which he had to be prone and paralyzed. And I think for the first time ever, we had him cannulated there and then flown just a few miles your way to the University of Utah. And we had worked so hard to prehabilitate him. And we were just we had our fingers crossed that he would do well. Come to find out, we kept in contact with the family during that time. Once he got to your unit and was obviously stabilized, that he could finally auctionate on ECMO, 
uh, he was up and walking again. And I didn't know much about ECMO at the time. And I was like, okay, people do that. And I was like, I don't know how many people do that, but the University of Utah CVICU has their patients awake and walking. And then I had a classmate from there. We talked more about it um, during my grad program. And then I did rotations um, during my residency um, at, at the CVICU there. And I was really impressed. And I've just followed some of what you guys do. And I, you are obviously an awake and walking CVICU. And I define that an awake and walking ICU is an ICU that only sedates patients if there's an indication for sedation, allows patients to have the highest level of mobility unless there's a contraindication to mobility, which you've consider yourselves an awake and walking ICU. Definitely. Um, at least we do our best to be. <laughs> um, and mobility is definitely uh, talked about every day in rounds. It is, it is a standard of care uh, on our ICU. It, oh. If at all possible, these patients are supposed to get up and move. And we do our darndest to do that as a team. And there are, you know, there are exceptions, which it's not the right time for the patient, not possible. But tell me about how you guys got to this point of having this, the standard of care for every patient that it is possible with. So we've always had uh, nursing leadership and physician leadership be pro-mobility. But we just were never quite sure how to fully execute that. And um, when shortly after I started on the ICU, our our staffing ratios just didn't allow for a whole lot of therapy supporting the mobility. We just weren't well staffed enough. Um, and we, this is nine years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. So physical therapy in the ICU was still kind of a a back end thing, right? Kind of visiting the ICU, yeah. not we're, not what it is now. Yeah, we were very much a consultative service, and we sent somebody to the ICU to do what they could every day. Um, there wasn't, it wasn't a standard person. It was often a floating rotation situation. And um, so you could be on the ICU one day and then the next three days you're on the floor. Uh, it just kind of went the way it went. Yeah. And, uh, and probably not a lot of training or expertise in all things ICU. Yeah, very much not. Yeah. Um, and then we had a physician start who was very pro-mobility and, and he linked up with us very quickly. And together, we were able to approach our management and then hospital management about doing a quality improvement project where we made therapy a priority on the ICU. And we, we wanted to start with just doubling our staffing and just see what happens. We didn't set parameters for day, days of the week or times. We just wanted to let um, the, the clinician make the best choice that they could for the patients. And, and we had some really good results. And now I'm sure listeners are ripping their hair out saying, how did you get pull that off to get doubled staffing? How did you get buy-in for that? I mean, I'm, I imagine this is before the Johns Hopkins evidence or research showing that it's a return on investment, right? Yeah. I mean, we, uh, this, uh, how did we, um, it was, it was a different era too. So we had planned, uh, 
growth in the facility. There was new floors, a new building going up. And so there was planned hiring to take place for that. And our we pitched it initially as, well, let's take these new FTEs and just put them on the ICU. And then let's see what the results are. And if we don't like the results, we can just move them into the new area. Okay. Um, and so the timing worked for that. And and what we found was uh, we had improved functional outcomes. We had decreases in length of stay. We had um, we had improved continuity of care because this this group was dedicated to the ICU. And we had improved teamwork across the board, therapy and nurses working together, therapy and the physicians interacting daily. Um, it really set a new standard of care. And how did you see increased presence of PT in the ICU impact sedation practices on the nursing side? Um, there was more therapists saying, hey, can we work with this patient? Our goal, uh, our mandate for the project was to give all appropriate patients all the therapy time that they could handle um, and that we could provide. And um, what we found when we dove deeper into the, the results and the data was that actually our most critically ill patients benefited the most from this. So the ones that would typically be more sedated, the ones that typically got less therapy because we didn't have the know-how or the time to figure out how to work with those patients. Um, we the the project gave us the opportunity to figure that out, and wow. we found that all of our our, our most critically ill, those with um, ECMO or temporary mechanical circulatory support, continuous renal replacement therapy, um, and mechanical ventilation uh, for greater than twenty four hours, or some combination of the three. Um, for those patients, we could decrease our ICU length of stay by two and a half days with the increased therapy they were getting. And um, their overall hospital stay decreased by almost five days. It was about four and a half. Wow. Did you measure discharge disposition where they went after their hospitalization? We, we, we did. Um, and one of the things that's hard with us is we, our cardiac ICU has a partnership with the VA health system in Salt Lake. Okay. And so once they go to the VA, we kind of lose a little bit of that, um, that ability to track. And so we weren't able to dive as deep into the discharge planning. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, this is so validating. I, I had to share that just yesterday I was in on a, a meeting and uh, with a healthcare system and talking about all, all these things, right? Collaborating, moving forward. And one of the physicians um, expressed on behalf of the physician group that they were worried that their patients weren't appropriate because they were on vasopressors and stuff like that. Mm. <laughs> Meaning that it was really nice what we were talking about, but their patients are sick. Therefore, they have to be sedated. And um, it's really hard for me to find the right words in the moment. I'm like, so I, someone even asked the question, well, where is the validation for sedation in that moment? You're asking for validation for, to move them, to get them off sedation, but where's the validation to even start sedation? Um, if they're on vasopressors, why is that culturally, you know, why are we sedating per acuity? Why are we immobilizing per acuity? Again, there are exceptions that they cannot oxygenate with movement. If they become 
completely unstable. Obviously, that's a threshold. But what you're saying, it validates my experience is that the patients that are sicker are the most benefited. They're going to have the longest course. I mean, you do early and right away. You set them up to survive and thrive. So that's extremely validating. I wish I could have had you in on that call at that moment <laughs> to, to, to approach that. But that's a very common mentality. That's not to knock anyone at that healthcare system or even the person that mentioned that. It is a shared mentality. But you are a myth buster. <laughs> you pro proved through your data, through your work, that the sicker patients benefited the most from your interventions. Yes, very much so. And um, the opportunity to do the therapy with the sicker patients has really changed the paradigm, even among our rehab team, that and and how we prioritize our patients. Um, I mean, we use objective measures every day, but bottom line, you know, for, to very much simplify it, who's ever worse gets to go first as long as it's medically safe. Um, and how did this impact your skill set? I guess I want to hear from um, Brian as well, or Paul, how did, how did you develop this skill set? You know, you were fairly new in your, your um, field, mm -hmm. occupational therapist, probably same with physical therapists, don't get exclusive intensive ICU training to be prepared for this. So how did increasing on this process of care, standardizing this, this approach to medicine, improve your skill set, and then give you the confidence to be this aggressive? Yeah, so I think it goes back to thinking about the kind of the old school model of rehab in the acute care setting is maybe one therapist is dedicated to two floors every day. Half my patients might be neuro, half my patients might be on a trauma unit. By increasing our staffing, what that's allowed me to do is to stop worrying about a breadth of knowledge and start focusing on some very specific pieces of knowledge rather than worrying about being efficient at or actually kind of just okay at five, 10 different things it's allowed me to say, I'm going to be good at two things and I'm going to dive really deep in on this. And so that's done a couple of things for me. That's improved my competency by being able to just take a deep dive on cardiovascular um, pathophysiology and treatments. And then it's also allowed me to engage and be more involved with the interdisciplinary team. The benefits of having higher staffing on a floor is not only does it improve the PT and the OT's competence, but now we become a familiar face with our physicians. We're familiar face with our RNs who we rely so much upon. And because we're these faces, these experts in just this one area, now we're we're collaborating more and more across not just therapists, but across with the interdisciplinary team. And when that happens, when you start to line up and everybody gets that same vision, it, it really opens up the gates of what you're able to do. If you want to try something new and you're a trusted face and you've done your homework, you have a little bit more leeway to do those kinds of things. Now, if I was floating to a, a neural floor and then sometimes on the CVICU, and I have this idea, even if it's based in the most contemporary research, I might approach an intensivist and say, hey, let's try this new delirium uh, prevention protocol. They might say, who are you? And, and that would be a bummer if, if we ran into that conversation. But that, that's not the case here. We're able to have those very frank conversations with our RNs, our fellow therapists, and um, 
everybody on the floor to to dive in a little bit deeper. It sounds like you had a good culture starting out with, but um, Brian, I mean, nine years ago, did you have this level of interdisciplinary collaboration? No, very much not. Um, we had we had fantastic leadership that knew that mobility was important and promoted it, but did not know the the idiosyncrasies to to doing it. And um, they our our floor leadership very much demanded to our therapy department. Like, hey, we need dedicated staffing here. We can't have people floating. And this is a this is not an uncommon argument in health systems. You know, people are advocating for themselves and and and, and their patients. Um, but I was I was lucky enough to be in a position where I had done my uh, a clinical internship when I was in school on that floor, so I was familiar with all of the equipment. Uh, I was familiar with with the staff and and so very early in my career, um, the my leadership, our therapy leadership made the decision like, hey, if you're okay with this, we're just going to have you stay here. And I was absolutely okay with that. Um, and you think about um, from coming from a nursing perspective myself, nurses generally don't like to float amongst all the different specialties, right? If an ICU nurse gets floated to the floor, they're not excited about it. If a floor nurse is expected to float into the ICU, everyone gets alarmed because that's unsafe, but -hmm. we're expecting that of PTs and OTs. Yeah. And And we're not providing training. Like a nurse gets onboarded into the ICU with intensive programs and training, Mm -hmm. um, which I think still have gaps. But we don't do that for PTs and OTs. They just say, "Here's your assignment. Get up there. Go, go do you know your your therapy thing, whatever that is." So there's obviously so much merit in having a very dedicated place to build relationships, rapport, history with them, have your expertise honed in on that exact patient population and those needs, and then to know each other and work collaboratively towards overall goals and and and. Um, quality improvement projects like what you're describing a hundred percent and i really have to give our boss uh credit because i think he envisioned this years before it was actually able to happen this was a, a process long in the making and shortly after we i i became dedicated on the icu with one of my colleagues um Uh, our staffing as a whole transition to teams like therapy teams. So we have a critical care team, which our ICU, uh, our team fell into, into the groove with. So we're, we're, we're a part of a bigger team that is responsible for multiple ICUs. And we have a neuro team that just takes care of the neuro patients. And we have an internal medicine and ortho and a burn team. I like to use the word even therapy not just rehabilitation, therapy. If I were to go on a tangent, I not that rehabilitation is a bad word, but I feel like the context in which we use it implies that we're going to do this only on the back end to fix the clean up the damage. Mm. But to me, to hear you say therapy, it's a therapy team, not just a rehabilitation therapy team means the, t- the timing can be whatever. And yeah. you guys do it on the front end. So you're more, for most patients, probably prehabilitating, preventing the problems you're not just the rehabilitation team that comes in on the back end mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but you're there on the front lines with everyone else right away 
Oh, yeah. I think that's the shift that we're starting to see. At least we've seen it here at the university, but as a culture in, in the therapy world as a whole is moving away from, uh, at least into the same degree, moving away from the consultative service saying, hey, I'm therapy, I'm recommending you go to skilled nursing, you go to inpatient rehab, and moving more towards starting that therapy process right away increasing the minutes and the interactions that we have with the patients to prevent and reduce the impact of this hospitalization um, altogether. So our, our boss has this catchphrase, I don't know where he came up with it, but he, he says, acute care is the new rehab. Start treating patients as if they're inpatient rehab patients in the ICU, on the step-down units, how much further along are we going to have our patients by the time they do get to a skilled nursing facility, by the time they do get to inpatient rehab? Will they need inpatient rehab by the time they're done with their hospital stay if we've already treated them, you know, 30 times between PT and OT? So. Oh, I love it. And we'll get into that, divvying up the doses, right, between PT and OT. Um, but I think what happens in some of the older models of care is that patients stay sedated until they're tracked and paid, and then they're sent to LTAC and suddenly they're appropriate to mobilize, even though nothing about their status has changed. And maybe they sat there for a few days in the ICU waiting to, to transfer, mm -hmm. but they weren't mobilized because they were in the ICU. They were too sick. They were sedated because they're just there. Um, but the idea of treating it like an L a rehab center um, during the critical illness is a really good approach. You just captured what we're working towards on this podcast. And you guys are sitting side by side, both talking to me about this project that you've worked on together. I think sometimes we perceive OT and PT as interchangeable, but you're really not. I know you're both a little bit triggered by that, right? <laughs> and I'm sure many listeners are too. And I bring that up because it is a hot topic, right? It really gets people going. Not the nurses, not the doctors, not the RTs. Yeah. It gets the OTs and PTs going, right? Yeah. I so explain to the rest of us the difference in your roles and how you guys work together. Because I see as I'm working with teams, especially when patients are deeply sedated and then they're trying to rehabilitate them, PTs and OTs are working together. And I think there's such a better way to do it. And you guys have this master. So tell me about how you guys work together, but not together. Yeah, the way I've looked at this, the analogy I give is occupational and physical therapy we, we are sibling services. We, so siblings are going to have similar characteristics, may have learned some similar things, but we're going to have our distinct personality. Um, I, as an occupational therapist in the ICU, while I am a rehabilitative service, I'm going to focus on early activity with my patients. I'm trying to reintegrate that patient's role and identity and help them to maintain that sense of activity participation while in the ICU. The benefits of doing that, of returning them to their normal applied daily activities is ideally to help reduce the incidences and duration of delirium that take place. It hopefully is, is in place to help reduce the effects of learned helplessness that happens to a lot of our patients in the ICU. And it uh, ideally is going to help reduce the risk of um, ADL dependence on other individuals. If, if patients are not able to do their ADLs 
by the time they leave the hospital, they're at a higher risk of coming back to us in the following 12 months. So I'm trying to make sure they can do those safe uh, activities safely and independently uh, by the time they, they leave the hospital. That's what and, I'm, I'm envisioning my role as in, in our ICU. And that preventing re readmission is one of the um, ways in which a fairly recent study showed that OT is one of the only services that have um, a direct impact on healthcare costs in terms of readmission for very specific diagnoses, right? Yeah, that was specifically for patients with uh, myocardial infarction and uh, heart, heart failure, I believe, and, and pneumonia are the three diagnoses found that OT was an underutilized uh, service for, for patients with those diagnoses. So increasing your staffing, even just for OTs is an obvious return on investment. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Tried and proven. Yep. Then PT, um, you know, we're, we're a little bit more known in healthcare. We're, we're the mobilizers. Our, our job is to get people up, get them moving, get them out of their room and um and do the the big exercises the the big uh the big movements that patients need to do to have the strength and endurance and and, and ability to be able to discharge safely um we we can start this very early on um as as little as post-op day zero sometimes um and and do this in a safe and 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 educated way um collectively i think pt and ot um are the for lack of a better term the tour guides for patients functional recoveries and um we help do this through um education and and chances uh, that we give people the opportunity to do these activities and we figure out where they're struggling and help them to overcome that. And why don't you treat together? Oh, yeah. The problem with seeing both services as, as one PTOT, as, as just one independent service, is it's going to decrease how specialized we can and specific we can be with the patients. It's also going to reduce how frequently those patients are going to be seen. And there's been a handful of studies, one by Schweikert and Pullman, one by Evelyn Alvarez. They've shown that increased frequency of treatment with patients is going to benefit them more than, than fewer treatment. It seems like a simple thought, but if we're just treating it as one unit, PTOT, then that patient might only be seen one time during the PT or OT. It's the inner if, if we're seeing it as interchangeable versus if PT and OT have their own unique identities. Now PT is working on some very specialized. They, they are the experts of mobility and getting patients up. Now they're going to get a second session with OT focusing on early activities and ADLs and getting them independent so now we're we're both getting them up and active and increasing that frequency and volume of treatment with our patients. And each time, each session, the body and the brain and the patient's, I, I want to say soul, everything's engaged mm -hmm. versus laying in bed for 23 hours a day, mm -hmm. um, not interacting. And I see you guys leaving 
assignments, homework, tools, you're engaging the family, you're telling the family what to do. And so each time that happens, that's reinforced. Mm -hmm. And the patient and the family have more things to do when you're not in the room. So I think the impact that you leave. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. Lasts far beyond when you walk out the doors. And the more that's reinforced, the more people they hear it from and, and actually engage with, the better it is. And I, again, from a nurse's perspective, I'm not worried about my patient when OT's in there, right? Someone's watching them. I know that they're going to be worn out. They're going to sleep after that session. They're going to be calm. Their needs are going to be met. They're going to, someone else is helping communicate with them. Like all those things are making my job easier, which I don't think nurses really appreciate, but sounds like your nurses, they probably run to you when they have a delirious patient, right? Yeah, we're we're pretty lucky. We We actually, on our unit, we spend a whole day during the nurse's orientation where they we spend time mentoring them on what are what's the purpose of pt what's the purpose of ot why are we even going in to seemingly provoke your patients to begin with and so we go over a few articles as to why this is beneficial we spend about 20 percent of the day just talking about that in a kind of a didactic kind of format and then we bring them along and do a little ride along they see you know three to four pt sessions they see two or three OT sessions, and then they get to follow speech along and watch some modified barium swallows and some swallow interventions, those, those kinds of things. And that that point in time during their orientation is a little ways in where they're a little bit more familiar with the floor, and they've seen, oh, who are these random people coming in my room? Okay, now I get to see why they're doing what they're doing. And so I think that's an important point during our nurses training that's helped with us to be a little bit more collaborative with our nurses. As a result of doing that over the last like five years that we've done that now is our our nurses do come to us and, and they'll have conversations saying, you know what, I've got this patient when I turn down their propofol, they're becoming quite agitated. Do you want to come in and see if you can direct them along and see if we could get the see if we could get the restlessness out of them. And it's, it's pretty magical to take a patient from a point where they don't know where to burn this energy to reorient them in and guide them through and become familiar with their situation again. And to afterwards see them or their nurses say, you know what, I think we can titrate this down a little bit. We're in a, we're in a better spot now. So it's, it's pretty cool to see. I think you guys are the big guns that need to be there during awakening trials. And it baffles me that nurses are not informed of what their resources are or how to utilize them. 
But yet they're the ones that are left with a huge task of turning sedation down or off. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just, it obviously is not working unless you have this kind of culture in which they know their why they know why these things are happening, why patients are agitated. They're not wanting to continue deep sedation because they know why, but they also, they know you. I love the idea of you guys being the ones to be training them on this as part of their introduction to the ICU, instead of one, one training nurse saying, call OT and PT, whoever they are, or whoever's on that day. But you're there being like, Hey, we, we get it. We are the delirium experts. We are the mobility experts. And here's how we want to help you. You're right off the bat, building up that rapport with them, those relationships, that trust that, that obviously plays into what happens at the bedside. It's magical. Very much so. And I mean, during the therapy day, it's not just them observing us, they're participating in therapy. Yeah. And, and we, at some point during the day, have a hands-on scenario discussion where we just go into an empty room, we use the Hoyer, we, we familiarize them with all the equipment that's available. And, and we kind of classify, you know, what, what is a, a what is a patient that should probably have PT or OT doing the majority of the mobility, and very much so. What is a patient that anybody can help mobilize? Yeah. And um, so when we do have these patients wake up, they get extubated postoperatively. Maybe it's overnight. Um, if if they're safe to get up, our our nursing staff just gets them up. And yep. And and if they're not, we when we walk in in the morning before we even sit down, we usually hear it from the night nurse like, "Hey, make room twenty two a priority. They're ready to go whenever you are." Yeah. And, and I'm sure other PTs and OTs that are listening to this are weeping. <laughs> that is that is the dream. Like that's what we want to happen in our teams. And I get frustrated when um, I see efforts and projects being rolled out for early mobility and they say we just can't get our nurses to do it oh that that for me that's a trigger i'm like you can't get your nurses to do i have you actually taught them how to do it have you provided the support have you brought in all the resources and the collaboration that they need to make that happen because a lot of times what i'm seeing is that nurses especially those that have come in during covid Mm -hmm. which are a lot of our nurses now Mm -hmm. they didn't receive any formalized training yeah. yeah because it's part of the job description and scope of practice they're expected to just know how to get these patients up when really all they've been trained to do is sedate them and turn them. Yeah. So we have to be providing that education. So I really appreciate that that's part of it. I think a lot of nursing onboarding programs in the ICU go over titration, a lot of monitoring, management, things like that, but not mobility and not delirium for the most part. I mean, wh- one of the things that we're lucky to have also is being a CBICU. There is a lot of other equipment um, there's ECMOs, temporary devices, ventilators, continuous LVADs, yeah. you know, and, you know, so for any, any temporary device, uh, it's just our policy that nursing is there during therapy to monitor the device. Like we understand the devices, we're educated on the devices. We go to all the same, um, welcome to the ICU, basic ICU classes that our nurses do. Um, but we, we, they, they very much, um, help us with monitoring and managing the devices during mobility. So they're there. And so they're getting exposure to mobility during therapy also. And, and we work together with them now understanding 
that our nurses are quite busy. They have their own jobs to do. They have all the things that they need to do in the day. Um, but because uh, our, our floor leadership makes mobility such a priority, um, we work together to find appropriate times for each patient to do therapy. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably one of the keys in to not co-treating with PTs and OTs um, is that you have nursing engagement and the skills and the perspective and the culture, all of that. Um, I had to look back into why was I as a nurse so comfortable walking patients on ventilators at night with no PT? Because people say we don't have PT at night or on the weekends. And I'm like, well, that never really stopped me as a nurse. I had to look back into my experience. And I'm like, no, it's because on day shifts, I even though PT was there, I was co-treating with them. I was helping with that. So I developed that skill set. And so I think that ICU could still have more formal training, especially for onboarding nurses, poor travel nurses or new nurses that come in. They're like, hi, this is what we do. Welcome. And just assume that they'll jump in like the other nurses. I have, I've realized now that that's not really fair, but that is what happened to me. And that's what we just do there. But participating with the PTs and OTs gives our RNs an opportunity to develop that skill set. And it makes it a lot quicker. I'm seeing with teams that I work with initially, all of this is so tedious. It takes so much attention and brain power, just like with proning to look, think through every little process, even for the therapists, right? That don't have all the experience that you have now for mobilizing patients with all these lines for years. Everyone has to really be cautious. I mean, you're always cautious, but they have to think through every little thing. But that speeds up. Did you experience that as far as because I'm thinking your, your nurses are really busy, but they're there. They're in on those sessions. But how do they do that? Could it be that you guys have that skill set that makes this a much quicker and streamlined process? I think it part of it is we have the, the culture already in place. And so there's an expectation already um, when, when you're starting out to, to move forward um, with these kinds of things. There's initial resistance or hesitation, I should say, to actually get involved in doing these things. But when you've done it so many times and it becomes an expectation, when new nurses and different individuals start coming in, they just jump in because that's the expectation of, of what of what you do. I think that's what we have going on right now. Um, what do you think the initial process was like nine years ago starting that up though? I think there is I, I think it helps to have top-down support. Yeah. Um, like we had an attending that very much said the therapists are the experts at moving patients. We need therapists here. And and um, but once once you kind of get everybody on board and and do those first couple big scary sessions, yep, and see that things are fine and see that things are okay. Yeah. Um, people start to say, huh, maybe we can do this. And they start to, to look to do it. Um, you know, we recently, as much as we mobilized, we recently uh, mobilized our first uh, femoral balloon pump. And um, we, we stood them up on the tilt table, dropped them down the floor and walked off the, the tilt table. And a lot of people were like, uh-uh, uh-uh. And, and, but everybody that saw that, you know, the next 30 balloon pumps that came through the door, they were like, can we do it with this one? Can we do it with this one? And once, once you see that it's okay, and, and you take all the safety um, measures that you can take, absolutely, um, it creates buy-in. 
and and we all love to see our patients get better. Um, it's it's really easy to get burnt out when um, your patients aren't moving and there are, are less than stellar outcomes associated with that. When people move, there are better outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and mobility is an easy improvement to see. Um, even just sitting in the hall at a computer charting, if you see a patient making progress, it's like, huh, okay, this is, this is what we do here. And it creates buy-in. There's something that Brian does that I noticed when I started here back like five or six years ago. Brian, you can't tell on on the screen here, but Brian's a pretty tall, intimidating looking guy. He's 6'6". He's got this voice. He's very charismatic, but I noticed he'd bring patients out into the hallway and he'd set up shop right in front of nurses stations. And so he would have these, you'd have these built in like cheerleaders for patients I think that was, you do this all the time. And I think that's so beneficial, not only for the patient to have somebody like saying you can do this, but it's so exciting for the nurses to see, Hey, there's this patient up in the hall with an RVAD right now. And they're, they are crushing it. They're doing really well. And so everybody together gets into this um, just exciting kind of moment. And it, I think that propels things forward as much as we want to be um, like hum- humble about our job and things, right? Just get in, do the work, do a good job. Yeah. The, the social aspect is really beneficial. Let everybody know about the wins that your patients are having and people get excited. My um, Some of my favorite uh, conversations to have after at, towards the end of the day when things are winding down is when an RN comes over and says, hey, we had an awesome session today. That was pretty cool. And you can tell they were pumped up about that therapy session too. And it it, it gets to be contagious. And it even it creates buy-in for the patient too. Mm-hmm. For the patients to hear it, when it's not just the same therapist coming and saying, oh, you're doing so well. But when 20 different people are telling them the same thing, then they start to believe it. And then they... And, this patient's self-motivation is is huge in their own recovery. And those patients that we can develop that, uh, those patients that have grit, you yeah. know, you, they, they, they make it easy to fight for them. But those patients that we can develop the grit, yeah, um, those are some of the most uh, enjoyable turnarounds that we can see in, in with what we do. And um, Paul is very nice, but I, I am definitely a big believer in doing therapy out of the room. Yep. And and off the floor, if if appropriate. Um, And it's just there's something that switches mentally for patients when they see different people in a different set of walls. Yeah. And it's so important to do. And it's I, I am very much not an edge of bed therapist. I know there's a lot of there's a lot of treatment sessions that can be happening. There's a lot of good things you can do sitting a patient on the edge of bed. Um, but I think to really create buy-in for mobility, people, patients need to see other people and people need to see patients moving. Uh, absolutely. I think um, as I've been dis- dissecting my experiences, realizing the impact that it has on other patients that are in their beds or in the chair, right? And they're maybe on the ventilator as well or getting close to it. They're watching other patients go around the unit. Um, mm. And 
it just normalizes the whole thing. Like I'm, I am in the ICU. I am sick, but I'm not dying in bed right now. And neither are they. And they look like they're doing okay. I can do this too, especially for the patients that don't have that innate grit or a lot of reservoir of emotional, physical capacity is really motivating. I love it when therapists play music in the halls with the patients that are walking, just the tone that it sets. Cause you, yeah, you can have a really hard event in the morning and everyone can be feeling the impacts of that. And then you have another patient that's in their own little world, right? Listening to Michael Jackson cruising the halls. And, and it just, it brings you back into let's move forward to the next patients. They still have a chance. Yeah. There's this great poem by Galway Canal called St. Francis and the Sow. And kind of the thesis of that poem is sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. And I think some of my favorite sessions are when I have a patient who maybe doesn't believe in themselves in that moment to get them up in the hallway to do something that's maybe stressful, maybe difficult. And then have them sit back down, get get comfortable in a chair back in bed and to just see a big grin on, on their face and to see them like feeling that having having had that reminder, like, oh, I'm I'm a pretty, a pretty hardworking individual. I can I can do this. I can I can work my way through this. It's it's pretty powerful stuff. I think I've felt like the best clinician when I am really pushing a patient to do the right thing for themselves. Mm hmm. And keeping them focused on the big picture of walking out of the ICU and going home. And sometimes, yeah, they're not excited about it. And it is a hard thing. I just remember, um, I think I told the story in previous podcast episodes, but I had a patient that um, at baseline, she's a motorized scooter. But we were afraid that while she was on the ventilator for for uh, some severe pneumonia, that she was going to end up with a tracheostomy because she was so weak. So we we basically rehabilitated her during her time on the ventilator. And she would just stand there and shake, not just because she was weak, but because she was scared. She was so scared. She was pretty emotionally fragile too. And I pushed, pushed, pushed her. Anyways, years later, she found me um, in the cafeteria of another hospital and said, Hey, I know you, you were my nurse in the ICU. And I thought I hated you. You were so mean. You made me walk when I was scared and tired. And I was like, Oh, this is awkward. <laughs> and then she had me this huge bear hug and said, but I've loved you ever since you oh. saved my life. And I was like that. And this is before like the podcast, before understanding the big picture stuff. I just realized that these things that I was doing, work really paid off and they recognize it in the moment. So having that perspective in that moment made me feel the most powerful, like more powerful than bagging someone or titrating vasopressors. Like that is true power right there is to get them to fight for their own lives. And Brian, I, I knew about your work way before I ever met you or became in contact with you or knew your name. ESPN posted a video of one of your patients years ago who was on ECMO shooting baskets outside. Tell me about how did that happen and what other crazy stuff do you do there? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that was, that was a fun session. Um, what's really interesting is it, that ESPN posted that and that was like four years after we actually did that. Oh, wow. Um, so that made its way to the internet very, very late. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but we, we very much around the time we did that QI project, um, we we had this idea and the, our system came up with this idea called Imagine Perfect Care. And we we came up with this idea, you know, like instead of instead of saying, no, we can't do this. No, we can't do this. We when people propose things, we say, well, let's figure out if we can make this happen. You know, there's obviously some hard lines in the sand that we can, just can't do. But 
um, taking a, an ECMO patient outside who was a very high functioning individual prior to getting sick um, to, to challenge them in a different way. Uh, like going and shooting some hoops was was very much within the realm of doing appropriate therapy. Um, some people thought I was crazy, but to my credit, Dr. McKinney was on the was on the right. He was left handed, so the ball was always away from the from the ECMO. <laughs> um, but the what a little note aside. Um, oh, hold on. I don't know. What was the question again? <laughs> Just how did that happen? Oh, um, how did you get buy-in from your team? Um, they, they said, what do we want to do? And I said, let's go outside. And they said, let's do it. That, it was his nurse. It was, uh, uh, just an amazing individual. Yeah. And visionary. She, yes. Visionary. She, our, our our nurses, uh, we we have a nurse led, a nurse driven ECMO program, yeah. and so our nurses manage our devices. We they're not perfusionists on the floor managing our devices. It's our nurses, <laughs> and so um, it, which is great. They get the whole picture. They do. They get the whole picture. They understand that patients need to move. They understand how to help patients move, and and so there's one last person to create buy in with without having to go through a perfusionist on the floor mm -hmm. you know so it's in our attendings are like just keep them alive and i'm like great we can do that and we and our goal is to do as much therapy as possible so we we walked over to that basketball court and so that basketball court was outside of our old rehab hospital which was probably 2,500 feet from the ICU. And, and so it was a very solid therapy session. And, yeah. and he wanted to go outside and I said, let's go outside. And, and I what said, did it do for his morale? Oh, it was great doing, doing, he was, he was an individual that did sports at baseline. So being able to, to do something sports related, um, even in his situation was, was great for him. And, and I'm hoping it, to do a podcast episode with him. So I won't give away his, uh, his final outcomes, but he is okay. doing well and will end up, um, following your footsteps in a lot of ways. We'll just put it that way. It's just amazing. The impact that you made in that moment. What else, what other similar stories? You know, I had, a I had a patient, maybe not as like, uh, flashy of a situation but something pretty magical is uh maybe maybe could i share two short stories that are Please. kind of related in, yeah in we love all the stories other. so we had a patient that was quite young and we don't we don't typically get the the younger patients and we were working pretty hard with this younger person and they were on a device and everything and everybody was rooting uh, for this patient and we're doing everything we can as therapists nurses whoever and after a couple months of being here with us, that that patient ended up actually um, passing away uh, over over a weekend, and it it hit me pretty hard. I, I actually called into work, uh, and didn't did not come in for a couple of days because I was a little cut up about the whole situation, wondering is the ICU even a place to work as a human being? Wow. This is this is emotionally devastating. Um, not long after that, um, 
I had a patient that was quite delirious, uh, could not get him to wean off sedation without fighting with the ventilator. And the nurse came over and said, hey, this guy has had a lung transplant. We need to get him vertical. Can we see if we can figure this out? Um, went in and worked with that patient, ended up helping to wean down their sedation a little bit. Our whole treatment session was just standing edge of bed and getting him to give his son and uh, give his wife a hug. That was our that was our session. And it was pretty special in that moment for that that mother and son to, to have that with their dad continued to treat him and he ended up being with us for a little while. Um, and so you start feeling like, oh, no, this is going to be a repeat of some other things that have happened. He ends up doing well as we progress with him and, and work through that process. Well, I uh, ended up kind of forgetting about him because he did so well. And I, I was at a soccer game a few months later for my son, six-year-old son. And if you've never been to a, a little league soccer game, they're adorable. They just hang out in a little pod together and chase the ball. And so I, I took off the morning from work, had kind of the sun in my eyes. I was watching this and a gentleman in a baseball cap and a, a hoodie comes over and says, hey, can I shake your hand? I had no idea who this individual was. And it was that patient who had had the lung transplant. He said, you were you were my OT when I was in the ICU. And I'm so glad I ran into you today and uh, just gave him a hug. And we just talked about golf for the rest of the time. And it was pretty magical to see the contrast. You know, you see so many hard things every single day and that can weigh on you. Um, but just being able to see the outcome of this guy, it was his first time actually going out in public afterwards. And we we happened to run into each other. He was at his grandson's soccer game and I was at my son's. And uh, to that, that reaffirmed to me that the process, the struggle that you go through as a therapist, as a nurse, as whoever, it, it is worth it. And there are these really beautiful things that happen for folks um, afterwards. And that's only going to happen if we do the right, if we create the opportunities for that to happen to begin with, if we would have said, you know what, this, we can't wean this guy's sedation, just wait and see, it might've been a different outcome for this guy. But instead we worked together and said, let's give it a try. We're going to trust the evidence and create this opportunity going forward. And, and it worked out in that situation, which is pretty cool. And that's what this is all about. That just captures what all of this work you've done for so many years, all the pushing, all the changes, all the revolutionizing that you've been doing, you create those opportunities for patients to thrive. And the impact that you make is immeasurable. Right? I just think about those moments, those little decisions, the, the little things are not so little. Why, you know, I think we always think, why not wait another day for sedation, right? But that's, um, I liked what Dr. Belushi said in a couple episodes ago, every drop matters. Every drop is toxic. Every drop makes an impact. And um, there's a recent study showing that um, early mobility changes cognitive outcomes immensely. But it's you guys that are bringing in this focus and this expertise and really leading your your team to optimize everyone's role for this overall outcome. I'm so grateful for all that you do and this example that you set for the rest of the community. Um, anything else that you would share with the ICU community? Um, I think we're really lucky to work uh, on, on a floor that tries to help everybody work at the top of their license. And 
and and give some some breath for some individual autonomy and decision making um, within the 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 scope of medicine as a whole. Um, but it, it definitely has taken a few, there's a few key innovators that have been a part of this process that have really pushed for it. And, and their, their efforts have taken a while for us to get to allow us to get to where we are today. And I think, um, for those out there that are, are trying to be the innovators, keep, keep doing it. Um, the, it's the critical care medicine is kind of like a big old giant cruise ship. It takes a long time to turn a cruise ship. Mm -hmm. And so, um, change can happen and, and, and it culture shifts can happen. Um, and I think we all just need to continue to promote doing the right thing and following the evidence. Patient by patient, person by person. Yes. Absolutely. And, and any victory is a victory. Mm -hmm. I think some people get excited with their first, but once you get that taste of this works for this patient, it's hard to watch it not happen for all the patients, every shift from then on out. Um, so I think that's one of the big trials of being a revolutionist is how the patients maintain that perspective and that hope. So thank you for that validation. Thank you for everything that you're doing. And, um, I'll post that video on Instagram of your, your friend, uh, shitty baskets on ECMO and, um, we'll, I'll tag you guys in it. So they, I'm sending off the wolves. Everyone can come contact you. I think you guys are obviously experts in this and, um, should be utilized as such. So thank you so much. I mean, we are open to helping whoever we can. Yeah. We love talking about this stuff. Thanks for having us. We yes. appreciate it. No, thanks. thanks for being willing to share what you're doing. Appreciate it. a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts, please check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com.